Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. Good morning, church. We're going to go ahead and dismiss our three and five-year-olds as well as the six and seven-year-olds to their classes this morning. And as they're being dismissed, you can go ahead and grab your Bibles and open them up to Genesis 1. Uh, Today we're going to be covering uh, Genesis 1 to Revelation and so uh, we got a little bit, we got a little bit to, um, to get at this morning. So as you're turning to Genesis 1, which again won't take long, uh, I want to share what we're going to be looking at today. Over the past few weeks, uh, we've been looking at how, how Jesus has been revealing himself to the world primarily through the vehicle of the church or the avenue of the church, the body of Christ, uh, the family of faith as, as we oftentimes call it. And it's really the way in which Jesus manifests himself. Uh, that's the kind of fancy term of, of what epiphany is, is how he is making himself known, how he is manifesting himself in this world is really through the body of Christ. It is through the church. As we say, we're the hands and feet of Jesus. We, we represent uh, Christ, and he even refers to himself as the head of the church. And so uh, we are the body. He is the head. He is the pastor. He is the shepherd. He is the king. He's the prophet. He's the priest. He's, he's all of those offices for us as of people ruling and reigning, and again, is manifesting himself through us. And so the way the world experiences Jesus should be through the way the church functions as Jesus, the way the church loves like Jesus, serves like Jesus, belongs and communes together like Jesus, and as we'll say today, or as we'll see today, ultimately multiplies like Jesus. And that's really the four buckets that we looked at. And, and we've been using this phrase, the 59 one another's. And what that really is, is the commands that we have found in the New Testament that deal with how the church is to function, how it is to relate with one another. And we took those 59 one another's, those 59 commands uh, of the Lord to us and put them into really four categories. And, and there's a lot of crossover in these categories. I know that. But we, we viewed them down into four categories that we kind of refer to as uh, the characteristic traits of a disciple. We believe these four characteristics or these four big buckets really are represented in a disciple. Uh, you, you, you suffer as a disciple if you're not doing one of the four or two of the four. Uh, but rather, when you're operating in all four of these categories, uh, that, that is seeing you as a healthy manifestation of Christ. It's seeing you as abiding in Jesus and Jesus is ultimately living through you and out of you if you are worshiping, if you are belonging to the community of faith, if you are serving the body of Christ as well as those outside the body of Christ. And as we'll see today, if you are multiplying, if you are multiplying. And so that's what, again, our mission as a church is, the district church, is to glorify God. That's our end goal. That's our chief aim. That's what we want to do is glorify God by making disciples. Again, that's the, the way in which we glorify God is by making disciples, by spreading his good news across the earth, by making disciples of all nations through Gospel-centered worship, gospel-centered community, gospel-centered service, and gospel-centered multiplication. And we are redundant with the idea of gospel centrality because we know a disciple cannot worship without the gospel. 
cannot belong without the gospel, cannot serve without the gospel, and cannot multiply without the gospel, without the good news, without the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so everything kind of flows from that, and anything and everything that we do as a church is going to filter itself through this mission. Because again, this is what we believe disciples are. This is how they are to live out their lives. And so today, this big idea of multiplication is what we're going to be looking at and tackling as we walk, you know, kind of quickly through Genesis um, and then land a little bit in uh, some of the New Testament as we get to Revelation. But this is the big idea that God has given us this mandate to multiply. And, and, and we always want to take everything back to the creative order. I mean, really, you, could, you can sum up the entire Bible and God's creative order and his creative design and how it all got broken and fractured by just looking at chapters uh, of 1 through 11 in Genesis. Uh, it really lays the foundation for how we are to then interpret the rest of the scriptures throughout the Bible and how God is, is working and moving among them. And so this idea of being fruitful and multiplying comes in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, when it says this. Then God said, and just kind of give you the context here, this is as he's creating, um, and we mentioned this, we touched on it a little bit last week, but as he is creating, up until this point, there was, let there be, let there be, let there be. He was uh, creating the, the day and the night. He was creating the land and the sea. He was creating the animals and their various kinds. He was doing all these things, let there be. This is the first time that he moves and shifts the language to let us. Let us make man in our image. So then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion again over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that creeps and moves on the earth. So the idea there was, was not just uh, get married and have babies. Like that's not just the idea that's coming out of this. But the idea in being fruitful and multiplying is spreading God's image. It's spreading God's image over all of the earth. Because again, the, the idea that God is wanting is for his glory to be made known. For his glory to be on display. And so not only do we see that in, um, in the Psalms when it refers to creation, that, the, that creation is just displaying and declaring the glory of God, but we also know that in man itself, that in, in you and I, in male and female, is the beauty of God's ultimate glory and ultimate image on display. So that, yes, you might see a mountain and you might think, man, how good is God? And you might see the ocean and you might say, how vast and glorious is God? But when we look at human beings and how intricately and uh, in detail they are created and that there's a deeper level of image born to each one of us when it comes down to a soul, that nothing else in all of creation bears that same image. Nothing else in all of creation. Like when you're, and I know I'm harping on like dogs and cats, so maybe I'll go cats this time, all right? So 
if your cat is, is walking around on the counter and knocks off a glass and it breaks and shatters on the floor, that cat is not all of a sudden thinking, how wretched of a person am I? Like it, it, it's not having any remorse over, over the fact that it's just done something wrong. It, it's not worried about whether or not it has sinned against its creator. There's, there's something different and unique to human beings that God has created where we have eternity written on our souls. That we have this broken relationship with the Lord that we're wrestling with on a daily basis because of the indwelling sin that we have from our birth. And that we're groaning and that we're working that out as we are coming to Christ and that, that we are, are learning about the gospel and growing in the gospel and being able to then put that groaning and that sin to death and become alive in the new identity that we have in Jesus Christ. Like nothing else in all of creation is worried about that or is wondering how to work that out. Like when, when the lion is chasing after the gazelle and is eating it and killing it, it's not guilty it doesn't feel guilt in that sense when it's killing something. But we do. We do. Not the gazelle, but just in general. We feel this pain. Because the way God designed us is to praise Him in all things and to enjoy Him forever. Like a lot of times people ask, why did God create humans? And a lot of times people will answer, he created us for community. Like that he was lacking, he was bored, and he just thought, I'm going to create humans so that I can have someone to fellowship with. And, and again, that's why I love the fact that God begins the creative order in saying, let us make man in our image. Now we are a monotheistic religion, if you will, which means we believe in one God. One God. So if you were to say we believe in one God, but yet this God is referring to himself as an us, is he schizophrenic? Like, is he confused here? Like, what? No, it's that we believe in one God that is made up of three individual persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what we believe. So God has existed for eternity in a community. So he was not lacking. He was not bored. He didn't have no one to talk to or, or to uh, uh, work out praise and glory and honor. He knows who he is and he's not lacking of anything. So then why create humans? Well, one, to also put on display how awesome and amazing he is. But at the same time, and this is the benefit of us, but for something else to enjoy who he is. For something else to experience the glory that he is and that he exists in for eternity. And we see this, Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. Selah. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad. And sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. 
God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him, know him. What that psalm is declaring to us is that the way in which we experience gladness and sing for joy is flowing out of and directly tied to us praising his name, us honoring him, us worshiping him, us seeing him as the greatest treasure that we could possibly ever possess. Greater than relationship, greater than money, greater than resources, greater than influence, greater than friends, greater than any of those things. He is our ultimate treasure. He is our greatest praise. And when we're in that place, we then receive the greatest gladness and enjoyment and satisfaction and joy. It's the the famous quote from John Piper. God is most glorified in us. He's most praised in us when we are most satisfied in him. Those two things are, are, are not mutually exclusive, but they go hand in hand with one another. Now, that's, again, the primary reason for why God created humanity was for them to praise God and enjoy him forever all over the earth as they spread his glory through being fruitful and multiplying, expanding, if you will. Bible trivia, how far did we get with that? Anyone know? How far did we get with this fruitful, multiply, enjoy God? Two chapters. Two chapters. All right. Good job, humanity. <laughs> like, we, we killed it. We actually really didn't even be fruitful and multiply yet. All right? It, it was just husband and wife and messed it up. Genesis 3, we get the fall. And from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation, God's fixing it. God's restoring it. He's fixing it. But just to kind of give you a little bit of what's going on here in the, the, the reason for why we need multiplication is because the effects of sin in Genesis 3, 17 through 19, also we see this in Romans 8, 19 through 22, we see the curse on creation. So again, there's a curse on creation in the sense that when you see the mountain and you feel that awe, you see the ocean, you feel that awe, you see a beautiful flower, whatever it is, it is still lacking what its intended design was to be. You're still not experiencing creation in the way God first ordered it and created it. We're seeing a fractured picture of creation, which is great because he's going to fix it and restore it in the end. But Romans 8 literally says that creation itself is frustrated with us. (laughs) Creation itself is groaning until the Lord comes back and restores all things. And I mean, that's where we get a lot of the biblical foundation for why there's hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes and fires and all these things is because again creation itself is is fractured and friction is happening in the sense that sin is still running rampant we also see the fact in genesis 3 that humanity is alienated from god all right the way that they manifest their alienation from god is they run and hide from him because they know that the relationship is broken and fractured Sin also in Genesis 3 strains the marriage relationship, all right? They had two chapters singing songs to each other, enjoying one another, and here they're throwing each other under the bus. Adam, what happened? That woman you gave me. Things were great, and then you gave me her. 
and then things went sideways. Like, that's essentially what Adam is saying. God's like, okay, just a few moments ago, you were like, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones. Like, I've not seen anything like me. This is like me. This is good. This is a helper. This is fit for me. Nothing else is better than this. This is great. And then all of a sudden, he's like, worst thing you could have done, God. I mean, that's literally what Adam is saying. The woman you gave me caused me to sin. And then the woman passes the blame as well. No one's willing to own their blame. She passes the blame on to the serpent. And then we see in Genesis 4, when they actually are fruitful and multiply, we see violence in the family when brothers murder brothers. I mean, jacked up family, right? You feel like yours is rough. We then see in Genesis 4, 23, it continues on. We see hostility in the community of relationships. Genesis 6, 5 through 8, we see that all of society is corrupt at that point to where God floods everything, just wipes them all out. You know, it's, it's funny, a lot of times culture says, God, if, if God is so good, why does he allow bad things to happen? Why doesn't he just fix it all? This is the first time he did that. So a lot of times, if you ask that prayer, why doesn't God just fix everything? He's just going to wipe everything out again. All right, let's just not go crazy, Lord. Let's just not do that again. Well, he promises us that he's not. And you get to celebrate that every time you actually see a rainbow. He then continues on after that, starts over with Noah and his family. Hey, continue to go out, be fruitful and multiply. Let's start this thing over. Noah kicks it off really well, getting drunk, passing out naked in a tent. Oh, this feels like it's going to go great again. To the point where as he continues to be fruitful and multiply, he gets to Genesis 11, went through 4, and we see the first organized rebellion and the end of God's creative order when it comes to the Tower of Babel and this organized people who have come together and they're doing two things that are going completely against God's creative order. Again, God's purpose, make my name great. Spread my name over all the earth. The way you're going to do that is by being fruitful and multiply. Just keep going. Just keep expanding. And what do we see in Genesis 11, 1 through 4? Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and a bitumen for mortar. And they, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Two things they're doing here. Let us make a name for ourselves. But we're not worried about the name of the Lord anymore. We're here to make a name for ourselves. At the same time. We're not going anywhere. We're not dispersing anymore. We're, we're done expanding. So not only are they directly disobeying, give Lord, the Lord the renown and glory of his name. This is really where we see the first organized idea of secular humanism. The idea of make a name for yourself. Expand your influence. Expand your power expand your wealth expand, like leave your legacy and and that's actually 
completely anti the gospel. It's actually completely anti God's creative order. It was never meant for your name to be renowned amongst the generations and to be passed down, but rather the name of the Lord. And you really see that. I mean, the best way it comes down to is John, uh, John the Baptist. Like, he must increase, I must decrease. Like, that's gospel. And here, what they're saying is, we must increase our name and decrease the Lord. Decrease the Lord. It's here in Genesis 11 that the curse of sin has reached its real pinnacle. Now, one point to be made here regarding the sovereignty of God is you will never, you will never thwart God's plans. Which is actually very, uh, very freeing to know. Like, that, that should be something that you're not, like, fearful of the Lord in the sense, but rather that should be something that allows you to rest a little bit. In knowing that no matter how you think you might jack up your life, you're not going to thwart God's plans over your life. That's good to know. And what that actually does is for some people, they're like, well, that gives me a license to sin then. No, 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 no. That means you don't really understand God's plans. What it actually does is it gives you the fuel for worship. It gives you the fuel for worship. Because it shows you how much grace and mercy God is willing to continue to extend to where you begin to hate the things he hates and you begin to love the things he loves and you begin to sin less and worship more you begin to belong more and and sacrifice individualism more you begin to serve more rather than receive and ultimately you begin to multiply rather than divide so what do we see the Lord do how does his plans not get thwarted. We see in verse 5 of Genesis 11, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they, have all, they all have one language, and this is the only of the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down. Again, that language, that, that Trinitarian language. Let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So despite their sin, God will still multiply them and spread them over the earth. All right, now that solves the mandate to be fruitful and multiply, right? Like God just came in and just spread them and continued to do that work himself. It solves that aspect of it, but what about the aspect of God's name being renowned and God's name being made much of when it comes to them being spread across the earth? Well, God answers that for us too. The first time he answers that for us is in Genesis 3.15, when he tells Adam and Eve, and he's talking, they're kind of adjacent to this, he's talking to the serpent, but he tells the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first time that God is preaching the gospel to humanity. It's the first time that there's good news 
in the midst of darkness. It's called the Proto-Evangelium. It's the first good news. The first good news. It's the first promise of God that he's actually going to undo what they just did. That he's going to fix the problem. And that it's going to eventually be through, again, fruit, uh, being fruitful and multiplying, having offspring and descendants. It's going to come through one of the offspring of the woman, a child, that one day will bruise the head of Satan. And in the meantime, also bruise the heel of the Christ, the Messiah. This battle between Jesus and Satan, death and, and the enemy. Ultimately, of course, that is all pointing to the cross. This is God preaching the cross right here in the Garden of Eden. That's the first promise that we get. He continues going on with that same promise. Following that great engineering idea in, at, at Babel, God disperses all the people over all the earth. And as he disperses all the people, he then calls one guy who's dispersed. One guy from the east. His name is Abram. And he calls him out. We see this in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Shall be blessed. So again, this is taking the promise from Genesis 3 and continuing to now amplify it. That not only is there just going to be a death of sin and evil, and Satan eventually, but also there is going to be a blessing, a blessing. And the ultimate blessing, honestly, is just the presence of God among the people. It's, it's restoring the relationship so that, again, the people are enjoying God forever and we are praising God's name because of the fact that we are enjoying him forever. So that is the blessing. The blessing is I am going to bring my presence among the people. And in this regard, among all of the families of the earth are going to be blessed. But, Abram, it's going to come through your house. I'm going to make you a great nation. Now, if you know anything about the Bible, you know here, Abram is 75 years old. He's in old age at this point. He's married to Sarai, who eventually will become Sarah. She's in old age at this point, barren to the point where they cannot have a child. And yet he is telling them, I'm promising you a child. And through that child is going to make a great nation that eventually will bless all the nations. So follow me here for a moment. That main promise is given to Abraham. Now, if you know anything about it, you know that it takes a while. All right? This is a promise given. He moves to the land that God has called him to move to. He uproots his family. He begins sojourning across the, 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 the geographical location there. And he just continues to move. And as he moves, their whole thing is, God told us there's going to be a child, so let's just keep getting busy doing that. Let's figure that out. But yet, it takes 25 years. 25 years before God actually blesses them with the child that he promised. Which is tough. 
Because that requires dependence. It requires trust. It requires faith that, again, God's not going to leave you without because, as I said last week in the sermon, that he gives us that measure of faith. Whatever he promises to us, he also gives us the measure of faith to trust so that we can be faithful and continue to praise even when we're waiting. He then has the child, and we know that that promise is then repeated to Abraham's son Isaac in Genesis 26, that there's going to be a blessing to all the nations. It then is promised to Isaac's son Jacob in Genesis 28, as he is continuing to be fruitful and multiply. We see Jacob is very fruitful and multiplying and has 12 sons that become the 12 tribes of Israel. All right? Jacob's name eventually gets changed um, and I believe it's like around Genesis 37 to 41, right in that range. Um, or no, Genesis 35, there it is. I knew it was in my notes. His name gets changed to Israel, and he becomes the father of the nation of Israel. So that all the 12 tribes, again, continue to be fruitful and multiply. But one thing to point out here is that there's a beautiful story in the middle of, of, of this family because even this family is a jacked up family, all right, is the story of Joseph. Joseph is one of the 12 sons. Joseph is a type of Christ. Joseph is a, is a type of Jesus. He is a beautiful picture of the story of Jesus that is ultimately going to come. What we see with Joseph is Joseph is, is beloved by Jacob, by Israel. Beloved by him, so much so that he, he buys him a coat that's made up of multiple colors, and it actually frustrates the other 11 brothers. So much so that, 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 that they are, um, that, that they're going to just get rid of Joseph, all right? Some of them want to just kill him off, and a couple of the other brothers, Reuben, another one, are like, hey, let's, let's not kill him. We don't need to shed blood here. Let's just dig a pit and throw him down in the pit and just kind of leave him, leave him there. And then eventually they see some Midianites coming down the road. And they say, you know what? Instead of that, let's just sell him. Let's sell him and then we'll take his coat from him. We'll tear it up. We'll throw some blood on it. And we'll go back to Jacob and we'll tell Jacob that, you know, uh, an animal ate him up. And, and that's actually the story that they end up going and doing. But one of the beautiful things that we see here is that God's blessing is going to make its way. All right? Again, you cannot thwart God's plans. So Joseph in this moment gets sold into slavery for 20 shekels of silver. And you can actually even foreshadow that all the way to Judas eventually selling Jesus off. He gets sold off, goes into slavery, actually ends up getting imprisoned. But because of God's presence that blesses while he is in prison, the prison guards are literally just blessed by Joseph to the point that they then put him in charge of all the prisoners. A prisoner in charge of prisoners. Interesting. He then, again, comes out of that, begins interpreting some dreams for some people. And as he's interpreting dreams, it catches wave with Pharaoh in Egypt. Pharaoh's having some trouble with some dreams that he's having. And he says, go get this dream interpreter and bring him to me. So Joseph comes, and as he comes, he interprets Pharaoh's dream. And it's this weird dream that's talking about flourishing and famine and whatnot. And he's trying to figure out what to do with that. And as he literally interprets this dream for Pharaoh, Pharaoh sees the wisdom and discernment and that the Lord and the presence of God is with Joseph, that he places Joseph, a Hebrew, 
over Egypt, literally in charge. He becomes second in command over all of Egypt. That's amazing. Like that, that just doesn't happen. I mean, everything in this day and age is all about lineage. It's all about blood. It's all about uh, right of, of family and where you come from. You don't take someone from another tribe. You don't take someone from another ethnicity and place them over somebody in this regard. But this is exactly what happens with Joseph. Now, Joseph and the blessing of the Lord is with him. Egypt is flourishing. Guess what's happening with everything else in the world? All the ones that are making a name for themselves, all the ones who are trying to not praise the Lord anymore, the brothers with their tribes, and they're, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Famine. Are you, you want to starve yourself of flourishing? Just go against anything that God has ordered. Go against anything that God has designed. Go against the way God wants you to live your life. You'll starve yourself. You'll find yourself in no satisfaction. Joseph finds himself in a place of blessing. And what ends up happening is the 11 brothers, and some time has passed here. The 11 brothers, they bring their people and they come to Egypt because they're looking for life. They finally realize that we're sinning and that's leading to famine. We need life. We need sustenance. We need, we need grace and we need mercy in this moment. And so they picture it. They repent and they turn and they come to where the blessing is. And Joseph is there. Now Joseph in this moment, being in the position he is in, has every right to kill every single one of them. But instead, what does he do? He forgives his brothers. They don't even recognize him at first. When they do, I mean, they fall weeping. And he extends grace and mercy and he takes care. I mean, this is exactly, and, and another thing that's, again, I just love how the Bible is just so in the nitty gritty details. Joseph is 30 years old when he enters into Pharaoh's ministry that he gives to him. How old is Jesus when he enters into his ministry? 30 years old. Like the Bible just, like God just loves dropping in little, you know, nitpicky things that really wouldn't matter. At, at, but he's like, I'm just going to just, sometimes they're dumb and they just don't understand. So I'm just going to try to make it as, as black and white for them as possible. This is, Joseph is like Jesus. All right. He's like, same age, same age. And he's going to bless. That's exactly what he does. He blesses. Now, when it comes to the idea of this promise going out, it continues on in 37 and 41 and on and on. The blessing continues to go. How does it eventually get to us? Because again, you're looking at a nation. You're looking at the Hebrews. You're looking at the people of Israel. Well, unless in your, you're in this room and you're actually Jewish, <laughs> uh, which I don't think anybody is, uh, from that bloodline, you're considered on the outside. You're considered Gentile according to the Bible. So the Bible just categorizes everyone in two groups, all right? Jew, Gentile. Well, again, you've got to come back to Abram. Not only did he say, am I going to bless your descendants, but I'm going to bless all of the families of the earth through us. So that we even see in Genesis 3.16, Paul just puts it out there. How do we know Jesus is the one that's going to be this blessing for us? He says this in Gen or Galatians 
Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. So right there, Paul's especially saying, uh, it was all talking about Jesus. It's all talking about Jesus. Jesus is the Genesis 3.15 fulfillment of the offspring of, of Adam and Eve. He is the fulfillment of Abraham's offspring that's going to have all nations blessed through him. It is Christ. Case closed. God doesn't like confusion. All right. He, he wants us to know because, again, he's about his glory and the renown of his name. And he's about you and I enjoying him in all his fullness and all of his goodness. And God has an absolute way in which that can be done. How to praise God and enjoy him forever. So he's going to tell us exactly how he wants every one of us to enjoy him in order to worship in spirit by God's power and, and to enjoy him in truth by God's design. He gives it to us. He just gives it to us. But in giving it to us, it still needs to get past us. It still needs to spread. There still needs to be fruitful and multiplying of the spirit and truth that is given to each person. When the blessing comes to you, it doesn't stop at you. That, that's what they tried to do in Babel. We, we have received this engineering insight. And we're going to build and we're going to construct and we're going to make a name for ourselves. And we all, we all speak the same language. So that's great. So we're just going to commune here and just stop here. We don't need to keep spreading over the earth. He said, that's not how it works. That's not what I've ordered. So this good news, this Messiah, the chosen Savior, the risen King, the great high priest, this good news must be preached and spread over all the world so that all the nations of the earth might be blessed through the offspring of Adam and Eve, and the offspring of Abraham, the offspring of Israel, the offspring of David, and it continues on. Why? Because again, that's how God designed it. Look at this in Matthew or uh, Romans 10, 9 through 15. How do we come to the good news? How do we receive the good news? How, how do you become a Christian? How do you get saved? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Great. Again, he doesn't like confusion. You, you hear the story of Jesus. The person of Jesus Christ. Notice here, it doesn't say anything about like how much money you give to the church or how much people you serve or how many friends you have or whether or not you're close to the pastor or not. Or like It has nothing to do with what you do, what you earn, what you, you know, give your life, how much good you do versus how much bad you do. Like there, there are no religious scales when it comes to this. If you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You're confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, which is mean you've come to the conclusion that I'm a sinner, he's not. I'm not Lord, he is. I didn't create, he did. He has all power, I have none. Now, I, I've come to that conclusion. Again, as we know because of Scripture, by his divine grace, he allows us to come to that conclusion. We, we were dead in our trespasses. We're dead. I mean, I don't know the last time you tried having a conversation with a dead person. They don't talk back. We're dead. And he makes us alive to understand who he is through his spirit. And so in that 
new heart that we receive, we believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. All right, remember? This isn't just about the family of Abraham. There's no distinction between Jew or Greek. This is for all the families of the earth in order to be blessed. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then here he just starts to ask these kind of rhetorical questions. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him on who they've not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Right there, he's saying multiplication is not only just a, a great idea, it's absolutely necessary. Like it's absolutely necessary because the way in which God saves is by you and I as his saved children going out with the good news and sharing that good news with others. So that as they hear it, they're able to confess it, believe it, and then proclaim it. Continue spreading it on. Where did Paul get this from? Because again, this is coming from the Apostle Paul. Well, he gets it from Jesus in Matthew 28, 16 through 20. The 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. That's awesome. All right, we're getting back to praise his name. All right, that's the purpose of Jesus bringing them in relationship with him is to worship him, to praise him. Some doubted. I I know you've heard me talk about that before. I love that that's in there. I love that that's in there. Because here's the reality is, is what we're teaching today, some of you right now, you're doubting. You're doubting it. You're doubting God's blessing over your life. You're doubting God's goodness over your life. You're doubting God's graciousness through your life. And what he's saying here is he allows space for that. He allows space for that. In this moment, there's there's actually no rebuke of them doubting. But rather an encouragement for the doubt. An encouragement. Jesus came and said to them, you're doubting? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Don't forget that you cannot thwart my plans. Nothing can. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. All nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's immersing them in the let us. Immersing them in the relationship with the Lord. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them. This is a part of multiplication. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always. 
to the end of the age. Nowhere you go, I will not be with you. I'm always with you wherever you go. You're not doing this alone. I'm not calling you to go anywhere that I'm not going to come and provide the sufficiency that you need in order to execute whatever ministry I'm calling you to go do. That's what he said. I'm providing everything you need. And what you need is me. I'm going with you everywhere so that I can keep reminding you all authority in heaven and earth is mine. It belongs to me. So you can go into this anti-gospel country. You can go into this area that is hostile towards Christians. You can go into wherever it is because all authority is mine. And who I'm going to save, as you proclaim the good news, I will save them. That's why I love like when, when we first moved to Indianapolis to plant here and knowing that God has called us to come and plant here. We didn't come just, you know, I just hope. I hope that some people get saved. No, we, we knew people will get saved. And, and, and the beauty behind it is it's, it's really not up to us in how we convince them to get saved. Rather, all we have to do is just teach the good news. We teach the, God, we, we teach the Bible. We, we, we discuss the Bible in our groups. We pray to the Lord. We work that out. We, we just teach the good news. And, and as it lands on other people's ears, God begins doing the work of taking out their heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh, as it says in Ezekiel. And all of a sudden now, they have this ability to confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and to believe in their heart, that new heart that they got that's flowing, to believe in their heart that Jesus has been raised from the dead and that he is their Lord and Savior and that he is now their greatest treasure. And now, all of a sudden, they are free from everything that they've been striving after, everything that they've been longing for, everything that they've been broken in. They're freed from that. To be able to pursue the Lord, to be able to abide in Christ, to be able to be fully satisfied and enjoy him and in return, Praise Him for all the goodness that He's just done in their life. And that, so that, that leads you into gospel-centered worship because it provides the fuel for your worship, which then drives you into, hey, you're now a part of a, of a family, of a, of a church. You're now a part of the body of Christ. You now belong. So now you are being made a disciple in the context of a community. And then the overflow of that worship and that community leads into the overflow of, of serving. All right, like Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. Well, Jesus serves. And so now that I am in Christ and Christ is in me, I want to serve. I'm going to multiply myself out to begin pushing it towards others and begin serving them with this good news that is now within me. And then even more than that, it becomes to the result of discipleship, which is, hey, I, I, I'm going to be fruitful and multiply. I'm going to expand. It, if it ends with Peter and James and John and Matthew and Bartholomew and all the rest of the disciples, if it ends with them, you're not in this room right now. Period. 
And the beauty is, is you actually have access to be able to trace what we call church history. You can trace the expansion of the gospel over the centuries, the last 2,000 years, to be able to figure out how you got in this room right now. Like, America didn't, didn't create Christianity. All right? We, we, we were a mission field that needed the gospel to come. And so when we settled, we were just fortunate. I say that jokingly. You can't thwart God's plans. The gospel came on the ships with us. And it continued to expand and multiply as we are here. And again, it doesn't stop here. It needs to continue to spread and multiply and have a heart, as it says here, for the nations. You are to make disciples of all nations. And how do we know? And I just, again, I love Revelation here because it provides for us the victory. Like it's, it's almost like saying, let me, let me pick a, you know, a, a kickball team. We're going to enter into a tournament. And let's just hope that we make it to the playoffs. Let's just hope that we make it to the championship. And let's just hope that we win. Well, okay. We, we win. Like he, he puts the team together, the church, and it goes out and it does not lose. It does not lose. John gets this vision and he sees in the end what it's going to look like when we're in heaven. We see this in Revelation 7, 9 through 10. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, that is Jesus, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Like, God's going to bring it all back together so that we are rightly sitting in front of Him, praising Him, making much of His name, and in that moment, I mean, you think you've experienced satisfaction. I mean, this is where we, like, I know we want to experience things in this life. But oftentimes, if your greatest longing is not, come Lord Jesus, then, then you don't have a right understanding of where we're going and what we're going to be experiencing you might be like, well, if I could, I mean, I, just, I remember, I was in high school, I was in college, I was like, Lord, just at least don't come back until I get married. You know, don't get, don't come back until, you know, I, you know, multiply and have some little Dwayne's running around. And now I'm like, come Lord Jesus, you know, no, it's, no they're great, I love them. But we get to sit in front of him. Unhindered presence with the Lord. No weeping, no pain, no sin. And right now, the period we're in 
is getting to play on the team of God saving and redeeming and inviting people to that room to sit in his presence and enjoy him forever. And he's given us the command to go and be fruitful and multiply and to spread the good news that has, been, that has come to you. And here's the thing. He's going to save who he's going to save. All right? Like, we can rest in that. He's going to save who he's going to save. You rob yourself of the joy of experiencing what that multiplication looks like by keeping the gospel to yourself. He'll grab the next disciple. He'll grab the next disciple. Like, like, like that's my prayer for the district church here in Indianapolis, is that we don't rob ourselves of the joy of seeing the lost come to Christ here in the city of Indianapolis because we get so tied up in our own uh, first three buckets. You get what I'm saying there? Like I've come from, in the past, backgrounds of churches that, that we've got our Christian subculture and we're good with it. And we just bicker and complain about the lost outside. Like we, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. We're going to get in the game and we're going to be a part of the ongoing win where it's like every pass is caught. It's a touchdown. Like we're seeing lost people get saved. And we're experiencing the joy of that. I mean, it's a fire that just explodes out of you as it continues to just spread to those around you to where it, it, it becomes addictive. I mean, I even remember being like on staff at, at the church in White House, Tennessee, where uh, my youth pastor at the time and the associate pastor at the time, it, it was almost comical in the sense of this like competition that they had. Now, a wholly good competition, but it was like, I mean, literally, how, how many people have you shared the gospel with this week? Like, have you seen any results from it yet? Has he saved anybody yet? It's like, have you experienced it here? He's like, yeah, I've got two lined up in baptism in the next two weeks. This is good. Like, it became like, a, let's outdo one another and showing honor kind of thing in Romans 12. where it was a, But it was like out of the joy of celebrating with one another and this fire beginning to burn of this idea of just multiplying. Like, it's a celebration. It's good. We multiply. I don't know when, and, and maybe again, this is just, and I know I'm going long, I apologize, but I don't know when at some point in our minds, in our development of Christianity, we started feeling guilty sharing the gospel. We started feeling concerned about sharing the gospel. We started feeling insecure about sharing the gospel. As if we're ashamed of Jesus. We're ashamed of Jesus. To the point to where we, we've, paralyzed ourselves of not sharing the gospel as if it's okay to allow that person to experience an eternity in hell. That's a hard truth. That's a hard truth. Let's share the gospel. Let's share the gospel. Let's share the good news. Share your story. How did you come to know Christ? Someone shared the gospel with you. Do what they did to you. Go do it to someone else. We continue to spread that. And as we continue to work this out in our disciple groups, that again, I know some of you are like, I don't even, you know, you've kind of been mentioning that a little bit. Our push for this year is for every single 
First and foremost, every single covenant member to be in a group of two to three people. And this is going to be an informal group that is meeting on your terms, that is texting on your terms, that is engaging on your terms. But it is you drawing one another and spurring one another on, as it says here in the idea of helping one another multiply. You're like, where's the 59 one another's in this? Instruct one another. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Teach one another. Admonish one another. Make your love increase and overflow for each other as it goes out. Encourage each other. Build each other up. Spur one another on to love and good deeds, which impact others. Encourage one another. You go and make disciples of all nations by preaching the gospel, the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And in these discipleship groups, we are going to push one another on, spur one another on to love and good deeds. I hate using the, the, the language, we're going to hold each other accountable to sharing the gospel as if we're going to like police one another. But what, at least what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, hey, look, man, stop robbing yourself. You're frustrated. You're in famine right now. Whatever it looks like, stop robbing yourself. Just try it. Multiply. Go share the gospel. See what happens. What do you have to lose? Start with a complete stranger, if you, if you will, that you might never see ever again in your life before you are fearful of destroying this 12-year relationship that you have with a neighbor or a family member that you feel like is going to make Thanksgiving awkward. Like just, if they have a heartbeat, share the gospel with them. Share the good news. I mean, botch it. Like, what? Like, just fumble the gospel out of your mouth the best you can. Here's the reality. If you know Jesus, you've got all you need to know. Share it with them. And if they have, if they have questions that they're like, hey, what about this and what about this? And you're like, I don't know. I don't know. But he saved me. And it's great. It's great. He, he can save you too. He can forgive you of your sins. Name some sins. He can forgive those. You just, you, just, you just try it. And there's going to be some people who are like, you're crazy. You're absolutely crazy. You're mean. You're a bigot. You're whatever. And, but, but you can't thwart God's plans. There are going to be some that say, oh, my God. <laughs> can see him i i see jesus like he's forgiven me he's forgiven me and that's what we're that's what we're after let's pray father we thank you for your goodness to us and we thank you for your commission to be fruitful and multiply and we are so thankful for your heart for the nations. Because if that were not true and it was just one nation, we would not be celebrating in this room right now. But you had a heart for all people groups, all tribes, all tongues. And because of that, we are here. And we know you. And because we know you, we are blessed. We are blessed. And we actually do become children of Abraham rightful heirs to rule and reign alongside Christ for all eternity 
And it's all possible because of your son, Jesus Christ, and what he had done for us. Taking our sin and giving us his righteousness. We thank you, Lord. We praise your name as we enjoy you forever. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at